I don't know about you, but there's passages of Scripture that when I read them, I always wonder at. Um, I, I heard a funny illustration at Dwayne's small group last week with Ravi Zacharias where he was in an airport. And he comes up to the teller at the gate there and asks if this is where his flight was going and this was the right flight. And she said, yes, this is it. So he turns around to walk away and she runs up to him and says, are you Ravi Zacharias? Yes, I am, unfortunately, you know. And, and uh, he, she says, I can't believe it. You have questions also? <laughs> it's funny because that man is so smart and so dead on on everything. She was blown away that he actually had questions. He didn't know at all. I laughed at that. There's passages in Scripture that make me wonder. One of the ones that I've just got through reading is in Exodus, where God displays incredible power in systematically destroying Egypt's gods, their hierarchy. He shows himself both to the Egyptians as well as his enslaved children Israel that he indeed is Lord of all. So that Israel literally walks out of Egypt free. They plunder the Egyptians, they walk out free, and they did nothing to accomplish that. It was all the Lord, which is a picture of salvation. Salvation is of the Lord. They had done nothing to gain their own freedom. It was gained by the power of God. They get their get some distance outside of Egypt, they come up to the Red Sea and they're hemmed in by the mountain and the sea when they see the Egyptians coming up behind them and their immediate reaction is somewhat funny to me. They fear. And you, you wonder, did you not just see what your God did to the Egyptians? Systematically. And yet their first response was fear. So they start crying out to Moses and here's what they said. Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Statements like that, I just it's hard to comprehend. You would rather be a slave than free. They would rather die in Egypt then be free. God's own children still had no faith, despite what they'd seen God do, they still had no faith that God was working for them. And what's worse, that passage in Exodus 14.25, the Egyptians themselves understood that God was working for them. Here's what they said. Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. They had more faith in what God was doing for Israel than what Israel had. And this was God's people. But it gets better, or rather worse. God splits the Red Sea, allowing Israel to walk through on dry ground on both sides. The Egyptians, not having learned their lesson, Pharaoh, rather, not having learned his lesson, commands everyone to rush into the sea after them, mad with pride, and the Lord causes the sea to swallow them up. So finally, in that account, Israel is rid of the bondage of Egypt. Or so you would think. Israel didn't get more than a few days into the wilderness after that account when Israel begins to reveal that Egypt was still in their heart. Here's what they said to Moses. Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. 
when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And that kind of unfaithfulness continues in Israel. Despite God showing time after time after time after time, He is faithful to deliver, He is able to deliver, and He will deliver. That whole account, you can apply to a type between the flesh, life in the flesh, and life by faith. It's really a picture of what Christians struggle with. Life in the flesh is slavery. You are enslaved to sin. But the life lived by faith is a life of freedom. It's a life of deliverance. God working for you and through that faith. Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years trying to learn what faith really was before they ever entered the promised land. You see, the promised land was a promise. It was received by faith. And until they learned faith, they could not receive that land. So that faithless generation that we just read about perished. You only receive the promise through faith, not works, not by the flesh. The point for us today is many who have entered the Christian life at one point by faith have nevertheless failed to grasp the life and walk of faith that is to continue. We walk by faith and not by sight, the Apostle Paul wrote. And every day, you and I, we can walk in the flesh or we can walk by the Spirit in faith. And most of us don't, most of us don't think about that reality that we contend with. Most of us just live our life not even recognizing we're still walking by the flesh. The comforts of the flesh. Hey, I want my meat pot and I want bread. As long as I have that, I'm good. Fleshly. Paul would tell the Corinthian church, you are still children of the flesh. I can't speak to you as spiritual people. You're not spiritually minded. Because they didn't know faith. Many Christians resemble Israel who left Egypt by faith, and yet once freed from that slavery, find themselves in their heart longing for the comforts of the flesh still. Paul makes it clear there is a life that's victorious in every circumstance, but it's a voyage of faith. And Acts 27 is such a wonderful chapter to look at that. So that's what we're going to consider this morning. It's epic, in my opinion. Paul had been told he would go to Rome. He entered that ship knowing he was going to get to his destination. God cannot lie. And he told me we're going. Whatever comes in between here and there, I will be delivered. I will be found faithful. So we're going to look at Acts 27 and consider four things. Faith understanding, faith ministering, faith obeying, and finally the triumph of faith. But let's read, begin reading Acts 27 verse 1. When it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramitium, I don't know if I'm saying that right, Adramitium, anyway, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia. We put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, remember he was a faithful minister, Paul said, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, 
And Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus, because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea, along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Snidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmon. Coasting, coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and of the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cotta, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the surtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned." Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found twenty fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding and again found fifteen fathoms. That's about 120 feet and then 90 feet. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As the day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. 
Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and let them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow was stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. So that's the narrative. I wanted to read it. There is so much information there we're not going to cover, but I will say this very quickly. Luke is so full of detail that this chapter has been used time and time again by archaeologists to confirm the accuracy of Scripture. It's an amazing study. You can look at it yourself if you have doubts about the authenticity or accuracy of the Scripture. Secular archaeologists use this chapter to confirm. He gives so many details you can check out. It's, it's fascinating. The first point, though, I want to talk about is the understanding of faith or faith understanding Faith begins with a promise. If you remember back in Acts 23.11, that's where God first told Paul, Paul, just as, you, just as you have testified before the Jews, so you will testify before, of me before the Romans in Rome. Paul believed that. That same promise was repeated to Paul in verse 24. You must stand before Caesar. So what did Paul say? Verse 25, take heart, for I have what? Faith in God, that it will be exactly as He said. Faith is always rooted in the promises of God. It's not a blind leap as it's popularly said. Faith is not believing something contradictory. Faith is not believing something empty. Faith is believing at times things that go beyond our reason, but not against our reason. Does that make sense? There's a popular conception of faith that actually devastates true faith. And it leaves the Christian faith senseless. Some of the most brilliant men in history have been men of faith. Because once you see and believe the truth, it opens up your understanding. So faith is not a blind leap. It's first founded on the promise of God. But faith perceives certain truths as we see in verses 9-12, through 12, Paul mentions it to them. He says in verse 10, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss. He warns them. Of course, they didn't believe him. But Paul said it this way to the Corinthian church. God has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might believe what is false. Sorry, that was Thessalonians he said that to, not Corinthians. There are certain truths of the faith that people who are carnally minded will never understand because they're spiritually discerned. There's a carnal mind and there's a spiritual mind. And so oftentimes when you talk to people, whether in the church or outside of the church, there's truths that you're trying to communicate they just don't get because there's something in their mind hindering it. 
Faith is always fed by truth, and true truth is what faith is built upon. It's not mindless, it's not blind, it perceives things that people who don't have faith will never understand. That's why Jesus, we're told, spoke in parables. People who believed His Word understood the parable. People who didn't believe His Word had no clue what He was talking about. And I can be a testimony to this. Maybe you can too as you think of your own testimony and conversion to Christ. Before I came to faith in the Lord, I had no idea what this said. I remember the first time I opened my Bible, I've said this often, I was a freshman in college. Sad to say, that's the first time I ever opened a Bible. I sat on my dorm bed and I tried to read the Gospel of Matthew. I thought it was Chinese. I had no idea what it was saying. Why? Because I was carnally minded. Faith speaks wisdom to a world who thinks that it's foolishness, Paul talks about. That's the reception Paul got from the Romans, from the sailors, from the Jews, everyone who didn't believe. But I want to challenge us today. If you're struggling with believing God and believing His Word, Ravi Zechariah said this in our small group last week, go read the Gospel of John three times without prejudice in your heart and see what happens. Read it with an honest heart, evaluating its claims, and see if your mind doesn't start to change. See, many people come to the faith with prejudice. We were in a debate in college. Jana can remember this. Maybe Travis and Jana, or Travis and Carl, I don't know if you're at that one. We, we held a debate in our dorm building, and the, the leader, or the head of our dorm, was challenging my brother on the claims of Christianity. And so my brother said to him, if I could show you, empirically show you, and prove to you that God exists, without a doubt, would you believe in, in Him? And the man said, no. And he had been arguing, there's no evidence, there's no evidence, there's no evidence. So my brother challenged that. If I could give you all the evidence you want, would you believe in Him? He said, no. And my brother pointed out rightly, it's not that you can't believe, it's that you won't believe. People evaluate the Scriptures with bias in their heart, and they confuse it with evidence. Not so. When you evaluate the Scriptures honestly, something begins to happen. I'd encourage you to go read Lee Strobel's Case for Christ and the Case for Faith. He was an atheist, and he was a legal journalist. He began to investigate the claims of Christianity and was converted. He challenged the authenticity of Scripture. He challenged the resurrection that had ever happened. He challenged all the major things you hear about today, and he did it honestly. And he found the, the evidence overwhelming. and became a believer and wrote those books. Those books are basically his interviews. It's incredible. So faith speaks wisdom. Consider God's Word without bias and see what happens to your understanding. Secondly, faith ministering. I love this. I love this point. The context of our passage is clear. Paul's a prisoner on a ship going to his own death. And this voyage is fraught with difficulties. But we don't find Paul sitting in a pool of self-pity. Nor do we find Paul kicking up his feet because of this all-expense-paid trip to Rome. What's he doing? He's still pouring himself out in ministry. This is a challenge for us today as Americans. We want ministry comfortable. We want church comfortable. We want it easy. And at the slightest challenge, we back off. 
we won't give ourselves to it. Paul teaches us different here. Faith gives and gives and gives. First of all, in verse 1, we're told that Paul was traveling with some other prisoners. That word other is an important word. It's not just more prisoners like Paul. More in number. The word other is they were different than Paul. And the idea is these prisoners with Paul were actually condemned men on their way to Rome to die. Now Paul was sailing as an uncondemned man to have his case heard before Caesar. We know he would eventually die and be beheaded there. But he was sailing as an uncondemned man. How fortunate, let me ask you this, how fortunate were these other prisoners to have the Apostle Paul on their ship? They're going to their death and they know it. And here the Apostle Paul is preaching truth. This was their moment. What if Paul had not said anything? What would happen to their souls? You guys realize, these men knew they were going to die. Kind of like the thieves on the cross. They knew they were going to die. Do you realize, many of us could be sitting here together, and it could be our last day today. It could be our last day tomorrow. We don't know what tomorrow holds for us. What if you have the opportunity to minister to someone here today, speak truth to someone here today, and you don't take it, and that person perishes tomorrow? Take advantage of the opportunity. As the subtitle, The Fields Are White for Harvest, is taken from the Gospel of John. Jesus looks out on the world. He says, man, fields are ready for harvest, but there's few laborers. What an indictment on the church. Paul is teaching us here, every circumstance, every point of our life is opportunity to minister. Paul also ministers to all without distinction. He intercedes with truth to everyone. I don't know if all these 276 people on the ship came to faith, but Paul interceded for everyone and it spared each one, at least temporarily. They had salvation. He ministered to all without distinction. There was the other prisoners. There was all the rest, the Romans, the shipmates, as well as his own travel companions. He interceded for everyone with truth and encouragement. His faithfulness leads to their deliverance. How valuable is someone like Paul to a church, to a family, to a group? Who intercedes for you? You know, God's given us, we're told by Paul, a ministry of reconciliation, of intercession. Peter calls us royal priesthood, right? We're all priests of God. What was the function of priests, church? It's to intercede on behalf of the people. That's what the priests did. They offered sacrifices on behalf of the people. They made prayers on behalf of the people. They interceded for others. That's your ministry. Paul could, like I said, he could have been sitting in a self-pity party on that ship. What's he doing? 276 people are under him right now. One pastor, Joseph Parker from London, preached in London during Spurgeon's time, so he's not as well known, said this about Paul in this chapter. He said, Paul entered that ship as a slave, basically, but he ended up the captain. What a great picture. Paul took control spiritually, of the situation. The last person there is Julius, the centurion. I love this. In verse 3, Julius treated Paul kindly 
and gave him leave to go to his friends and to be cared for. And then we're told in verse 42 and 43, as the soldiers, as the ship's being broken up, the soldiers wanted to kill the prisoners because if every, any prisoner got away, the soldiers would be killed for it. But who stepped in and saved Paul? The Roman centurion. In verse 42, or 43 rather, it says, wishing to save Paul, he kept the soldiers from carrying out their plan. We're not told any information of Paul saying something directly to this man. We can assume that it happened. But it is evident that this man was affected by Paul. Romans didn't care for Jews, typically. This man did. He cared for Paul. He wanted to save Paul. He helped Paul several times. So we can infer that this man, Julius, being in charge of Paul, was in a position constantly to observe both Paul's manner of life as well as his message. And we are told specifically in the Scripture of his softness toward Paul. I think we conclude the manner in which Paul conducted himself with humility, with love, with care, with truthfulness. Even enduring those chains, those wretched chains that he was in, he endured it without grumbling. This man would have observed all of that. And look at how it affected him. Sometimes, church, the most effective ministry we have is to be, pe- is to be people, the kind of people God wants us to be, even when we don't know other people are watching us. They are watching you. They're watching you at work. They're watching you in the family. They're watching you here at church. They're watching you at the grocery store. They're watching you in traffic. And you don't know they are. Here's a quote from Spurgeon. Talking about be careful how you live. He said it this way, It is a wretched business for a man to call himself a Christian and have a soul which never peeps out from between his own ribs. It is horrible to be living to be saved, living to get to heaven, living to enjoy your religion, and yet never live to bless others and ease the misery of a moaning world. Let that sink in. If all your Christianity is, is what you can get out of it, you're going to be miserable. The nature of the Christian life is to minister. It's to pour yourself out. That's the radical transformation that needs to happen in most churches today. That's why churches become stale and dead because they live for themselves rather than being poured out and serving. Your walk with God will never flourish until we give ourselves. Many want a faith that will serve them. Myriads upon myriads attend church not for what they can give, but what they can get. And when they don't get what they want, they leave. That's how it goes. I said last week at our ordination service for the Bo and Dwayne and myself, it's such an important thing that we understand that the shepherd never has the right to just leave the church, to abandon the sheep. When people are disgruntled, we don't get to walk away. We endure and we try and reconcile. But the sheep, oftentimes you find, easier to just leave. 
Paul could have done that. He could have checked out and said, man, I've been wrongly accused. I'm going to Rome falsely on false charges. Could have been mad. Nope. He's still serving, still loving, still interceding, still pouring himself out. His faith is put on such beautiful display. Another point to consider with this is to recognize how when you walk by faith, you begin to look at life and circumstances differently. With God, it's often said one is a majority. You don't look at the circumstances like Paul might have found himself in. Some of you have difficult circumstances right now. But when you approach those circumstances in faith, your whole perspective changes because you understand, I can walk on water if you're with me, Lord. I can overcome all things. It's not looking at the circumstance. You see, faith looks beyond the circumstance to the God who is present and there. Jesus said this, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, go be cast into the sea and it will go. Why? Because it's the God who is behind your faith. It's the God who your faith is rooted in. So often, church, we miss opportunities because we're not walking by faith. We're walking by sight. We look at the circumstances we're in and we say, man, this is so difficult, poor me. And you miss opportunity after opportunity after opportunity going right in front of you. Take it. I love that point. To quote Ravi again from last week's sermon in the small group, Ravi pointed out that this generation and this culture see with their eyes. You remember that point for those of you who are there? They see with their eyes, not through their eyes. That's a big distinction. In other words, reality is what I see for this generation. Instead of the eyes presenting to the mind something to be evaluated. The eyes of faith reasons this way, church. Oh, we're shipwrecked. Our bow's stuck in the reef. It's being broken up. We're all going to perish. There's no hope. Is that how Paul reasoned in his situation? He went beyond that. Why? He trusted God. I have faith. We all will be delivered, just like God said. Looks beyond. That's the reasoning of faith. This is why so many people, especially in our materialistic culture, have trouble with the idea of miracles. The greatest miracle is that we exist. And we can't explain that. How did we get here? If not for God, who is beyond what we can see. So we don't want to see with our eyes, we want to see through our eyes, and we want to evaluate with our minds. When you learn to do that, church, when you learn to walk by faith in this way, not like the Israelites in the Old Testament that we read about, they looked at their situation, we're going to starve to death. They look at the sea, oh, we're going to be buried out here in the wilderness, we should have been in Egypt. They just looked at the situation. Moses had to constantly bring them, no, trust God. Check this out. Bam! And the water split. That's seeing through your eyes, not with your eyes. When you learn to walk by faith, your outlook on circumstances change. If you're being overwhelmed with the circumstances of life right now, ask God, God, am I trusting you? Or am I being faithless right now? Am I approaching these situations with faith? If not, teach me. Teach me how to. Just like Israel had to learn how to walk by faith, so we need to learn how to walk by faith. But if you remain idle in your circumstance, 
I'll tell you this, you're opening yourself up to temptation. Idle people tempt the devil to tempt them. An active faith is protection. To the third point, faith obeying. First of all, look at Paul. Paul's obediently obeying, right? (laughs) He's in chains. He's on a ship that's being shipwrecked. He's right in the will of God. We, verse 1 and 3, we were told. Guess what? Luke and Aristarchus are with Paul. Paul wasn't left alone in this difficult time. Two faithful men at great cost to themselves. In fact, Aristarchus is called a fellow prisoner. You know what it's saying? He voluntarily became a prisoner so that he could attend Paul. How many of you would be willing to voluntarily become a prisoner for a brother or sister? You see the obedience of these people? The love that they had for one another? Laying down their own lives for each other? We... Paul, Luke, and Aristarchus. I've often wondered what kind of encouragement that must have given Paul to have people like that, to have a church surround him like that. Just imagine. We're told the centurion and crew admonished, were admonished by Paul for not listening and obeying. Paul rebuked him. You should have listened to me. But then he turned around and offered hope. But guess what? The Lord's told me this very night, none of you will perish if you now obey. We're told later on in verse 31 there that unless everyone stays on the ship, they will perish. Remember, there were some some of the sailors went up to the bow of the ship and pretended to let down the anchors. What they're really trying to do is get on the dinghy and take off and leave all the rest of the 276 to perish. Paul called them out and said, unless these men stay on, Julius... We're all dead. So what did the soldiers do? They went and cut the ropes, let the dinghy go. Julius finally understood, I should have listened to Paul. I'll do it now. And he saved their life. Faith obeys. Scripture clearly teaches us that faith is obedient. We are not saved by our good works, but we are saved for good works. We are saved by grace through faith. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Ephesians 2, 10. We are His workmanship. We're saved for good works, not by good works. My dad is a sailor, if you know him. He sailed his, long, his whole life, as long as I can remember. I was raised on sailboats, all kinds of sailboats. I can remember all the way back to my elementary days. On Wednesdays, I'd get out early, so my dad would show up at 11 to the school, pick me up, and he'd take me to the lake, and we'd spend the afternoon out sailing. It's where my hatred for unmelted butter on bread came from for those of you who know me. And I'll explain that later. But I learned something from people who sail, and maybe some of you have. Mariners are experts at reading the winds. You can look out on the water and see where the wind is and which direction it's going. But their mindset is different than most people with wind. We don't like wind. Mariners are like, bring it on. Because they understand something. The wind is not against me, it's for me. It's what propels me to where I want to go. That adversity is needed to be a good, accomplished sailor. And they become masters at harnessing that power. 
To successfully navigate, you must learn that skill if you're going to succeed at sailing. That is, of course, unless you're in a hurricane, like Paul was in this one. But even here, where the ship was unable to deliver the crew because the winds were too overpowering, what did deliver them? Faith. Faith. So often, just as the mariner is able to use the adversity of the wind to make progress, our faith makes its best progress when we see the adversities of our life as being for us, not against us. That's a radical mind shift for many people. None of us likes suffering, but when you begin to look at it as, hey, this is better for me, you're going to make real progress in your life. What's your mindset toward adversity? Paul, to the Romans, opens the letter of Romans, and he closes the letter with Romans with this one statement, I was made an apostle to bring about the obedience of faith. Faith works. And if your faith is to work, you're going to have to understand, church, the adverse trials that you face are for you, not against you. Learn how to read it and harness it. My last point, the triumph of faith. I love this. The very last verse of this chapter, verse 44. The rest came to the island on planks or on pieces of the ship. And then it ends, and so it was that all were brought safely to land. Faith has its victory both in this life and the next. Here's what the Apostle John boldly wrote in 1 John 5. Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. How many overcome the world, church? Everyone. Everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. If you want to be a victorious Christian over sin, over temptation, over adversity, over the trials of life, what is the one thing that's your victory? You learn to walk by faith. How did Israel enter the promised land out of the wilderness? By faith. Who perished in the wilderness and didn't get to see the victorious promised land? Those who had no faith. So it is with us. Some of us never taste that victory because we won't trust in the Lord. The triumph of faith in our account was not seen until the passengers of this ship stood on dry ground. In other words, this. They had to endure the trial before they got the victory. Some of you never know the victory because you bail out on the trial. You went out. It's too hard. Boom, you're gone. But how sweet was that deliverance when they stood on dry ground, given what they'd gone through for the previous two weeks, despairing of being saved. And then all of a sudden they find themselves all sitting around the campfire, looking each other in the face, not one person perishing. How sweet do you think that moment was to them? Very sweet. Very sweet indeed. Remember, Spurgeon said, we have no more faith at any time than we have in our hour of trial. He's right. When you're squeezed, that's when your true faith comes out. That's when you see the kind of faith you have. How magnificent was Paul's faith in this account. He entered as a prisoner. He became the captive. We just sang that great hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. It's a touching story. Many of you have probably heard the story behind that. If you haven't, I want to share it briefly with you because it's very, very moving. 
The year was 1871, and it had been a particularly tragic year for Horatio Spafford, the author of that hymn. He and his wife had lost one son in death, which I don't know that there could be a greater pain than losing a child. This man was a wealthy man. He'd invested heavily in real estate all throughout Chicago. When the Chicago fire, the great Chicago fire of 1871, burned everything he had. So he'd lost his son in death. He now lost everything he owned. Financial ruin had visited him. So he decided to seek rest for his family because of this heavy emotional and financial toll that they had just endured. So he packed up his wife and his four daughters ahead of him on a boat to England. And he himself was going to plan on coming after them a few days after. But the boat his wife and daughters were on was struck struck by another ship in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean and it sank within 12 minutes. Over 200 people perished, including Spafford's four daughters. His wife, once she landed in Wales, having been rescued, sent a telegram to her husband with the simple words, Saved alone. Spafford got on the very next ship he could to make his way to his wife. And while crossing the Atlantic Ocean, as he went over the place that the accident happened, he penned the words that we just sang, When sorrows like sea billows roll, it is well, it is well with my soul. If you're honest with yourself, could you pen those words? If your son or daughter or all of them, as well as all of your financial security, was taken from you, Can you honestly say it is well with my soul? I want to give you some background on this man. How can a man like Spafford suffer so much devastating loss and pen those words? You might ask yourself and be wondering, how is that possible? Is it possible to truly have that kind of heart in such tragedy? Spafford himself believed God's word to us. Here's what a friend of Spafford said of him. He said that he was a man of unusual intelligence and refinement, deeply spiritual, and a devoted student of the Scriptures. It's just like a bank. You put money in the bank for those rainy days, don't you? The rainy day never comes. Great. But when the rainy day comes, you're, you're glad you had money in the bank. If you're not devoting yourself to knowing God's Word, you are like a frail little person about to perish because trials will come and they will overtake you. You need to make yourself fat and plump on God's Word so that when famine hits you, you can outlive it. Church, this is such an important point. Many of us talk about the Bible. How many of us are truly in His Word? Honestly, you're opening yourself up without God's Word being such a dedicated part of your life. What if tragedy hits you like it did this man? The reason he could say it's well with my soul is because he cherished God's Word and he believed His promises. He knew God's promises. One pastor said this, Suppose an accident should take away our lives. I smile as I think that the worst thing that could happen would be the best thing that could happen. If we should die, we should but the sooner be forever with the Lord. Feed your faith with God's Word. 
And you can stand victorious just like these people. I have a cross. I, I didn't bring it. It's made of wood taken straight out of the Nile River from Egypt. It's very beautiful. It was given to me and my brother. We both got one by a, a ministry in California a long time ago. We had taken a bunch of Bibles out to this ministry because they were taking them to the South Sudanese people who at the time were in a civil war. South Sudan was Christian, North Sudan was Muslim, and the South Sudanese people were being slaughtered. And this one man, who was the chaplain for the South Sudanese army, carried a similar cross to what we were given, same wood. Their base came under attack from all directions. Bullets, mortars, everything flying through the air. The army, South Christian army, thought they were all going to be slaughtered. This chaplain gets up from the trenches, holds that cross, and begins walking straight into the bullets. And the Muslims watched this man carrying the cross, nothing hitting him, and they fled. They were terrified because they recognized God is with that man. I saw a picture of the man. I heard his testimony from the man we spoke to. Humble, non-assuming man, fearless. But he went forward carrying victory, the cross. So I want to encourage you. If you've come to a saving relationship with Christ, that this passage is such a testimony of what a victorious walk of faith looks like. Paul's ending his life well. He's voyaging to his death. And what an example. He's still preaching. He's still serving. He's still giving. And he won't stop until his head is taken from him. Look at your own life. And recognize you have opportunities that abound right now for you. Do you see them? If you don't see them, start looking through the eyes of faith. And you will. Take them. Run with them. Don't lose opportunity. God does more with one person walking in faith than with a whole church who simply warn its pews. Let your life count. Let the circumstances you find yourself in not make you bitter against God, but watch Him use and redeem those circumstances with spectacular opportunities. Maybe you're here and you thought, with the thought of death or the thought of losing your children or wealth or health or whatever, may terrify you. Maybe hearing these testimonies in your heart terrifies you. Maybe it's a mystery to you how someone could sing as we just sang. In that case, you need to come to faith in Christ. Your faith is in yourself and your circumstances and your money and everything else but the one who can deliver in every opportunity. Here's what the Word tells us, that Jesus Christ has gone before us in death, paying the penalty of our sin. And He's also overcome death through His resurrection so that we can have hope. That's why the Christians preached the resurrection. What circumstance do I have to fear? Death has been overcome. Just as our text said, so it was that all were brought safely to land, so it will also be that when you take your final breath, you close your eyes for the last time, you yourself will be brought safely home to your eternal home. This is, this is a picture of what awaits every child of God forever. You will be brought safely home. So with that, I want to invite the group up. We're going to sing one last song. And it's a song of triumphant faith. If you would, let's pray. Father God, what an encouragement to us 
You've secured the victory so that, as Bo read out of Romans earlier, we are more than conquerors through Christ Jesus. Nothing can separate us from you. We have nothing to fear, but we do often, Lord. Father, I pray for our church that you make us strong in faith. Father, make us strong in faith, not by puffing ourselves up. Make our faith strong because we know your word. It is the food that our faith needs. We need to know it, Lord, because trials will come. It is promised. If our very Lord was made perfect through the things he suffered, we can't expect anything different. Let us not try and insulate ourselves from it. Rather, Father, let us take the opportunity now to prepare for it. As Jude said, build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness to us. It's in Christ's name we pray.